If you have your Bibles, I invite you again to turn with me to Psalm 7 this evening. Psalm 7, as we turn again to God's Word. Psalm chapter 7. We're continuing our study in the book of Psalms. And tonight our message title is, The Lord My Savior. The Lord My Savior. Psalm chapter 7. It is the longest psalm yet that we have looked at. So if you'll join me there. And we will take time to read it and get it into our heart and mind. And then walk through the text together. Psalm chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. Lest they tear me like a lion. Rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this. If there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust, Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God, verse 11, is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword, he bends his bow, and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold the wicked, but brings forth his iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out, and he has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is the word of God. Of all the things that people could say about the Word of God, excuse me, it's they would not be able to say that God's Word does not tell us that to be a follower of Christ, to be a child of God, means that there is much ease. Certainly there are blessings, temporal and spiritual and even physical, that are poured out upon us that we attribute to the goodness of God. But none of us who truly follow Christ will ever be able to say that there was a bait and switch. The scriptures are replete with admonitions, clear teaching, examples that to follow God, to live for God, to follow Christ, is to, by default, also mean to experience affliction. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but, take courage in this, the Lord delivers him from them all. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, again quoting, the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament here, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Friends, many are the afflictions 
of the righteous. Have you experienced some type of trial because of your faith in Christ? In your profession, as you have lived for Christ, as you have served Christ in the job where God has placed you, have you experienced some type of righteous indignation, some type of feedback? Has this been your experience. The thing that I, I'm afraid about is, is what Linda Ravenhill says about even preachers. Is the problem with preachers today is that no one wants to burn them up anymore at the stake. The problem with Christians is that we profess to know Christ, but yet we don't ever seem to offend anybody. Now, let me be clear. <laughs> Offense is not our goal. Our goal is not, that's not our driving aim or ambition. In fact, we talked about that all through Sunday school class this morning, so I'm not going to revisit that. But it is interesting that the profession of faith that we say we have often never seems to get us into any trouble. Here, we find that David is living for the Lord. He is reigning. He is carrying out his normal life and administration. And yet, he begins to experience injustice. We see this all throughout the scriptures where God's children are ordered to go against conscience. For example, ordered to bow so that everyone bows. And they say, no, we, we will not bow. God's children are told to do something that goes against what they feel like is of the Lord or against the fear of the Lord or their conscience between them and the Lord. And so they find that their faith cross-grains maybe the pressures of the culture. And there is slander. There is backbiting. There's a real cost, you could say, for living for the Lord. So I want us to consider this question as we approach Psalm 7. And this is the question for us to apply to our heart. Is have we known God to be our refuge? Have we personally, has LeGrand Lamb, and insert your name, have you known God to be your refuge? You know, the righteous, we quote the verse often in Proverbs 18, the, right, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into, runs into it and is safe. Have you known God to be your refuge? Because Psalm 7, as we look at it, reminds us that the safety and security that we need is found in our God. Now here, as we look at our text in the superscription in Psalm 7, I don't know if all of your translations will include it, but the one that I have, New King James here, says this, Prayer and praise for deliverance from enemies. A meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord, concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but here we have a very real instance an account to where this is not general or vague as some of the other psalms are. We understand that David is on the run. We understand that David is in the uh, darkness of night, experiencing a great trial, loss of sleep, that type of situation. But here we have a very real account, a very real situation of a man named Cush, who is a Benjamite. We don't know anything else about him other than his name and the fact that it is something that he is saying among the peoples or maybe in the court or to David's leaders and influencers, if you will, and its lies and its untruths. And this hurts David, it stings David, because it speaks against his character. Instead of matching the slander or matching the vitriol, what we see David do in response to this is to take refuge in his mighty God, to take refuge in the goodness of God. As we look at this text, may we find refuge in our mighty God. See, David's God is our God as well. Because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we take refuge in God in a fresh way and remind ourselves to, to shepherd our own hearts, to run to Christ when we may taste of injustice or unjust lies, if you will. This is what we'll see in the account here, of what is being said about David himself. 
Now, just by a quick way of review, we saw Psalm 3 is called a morning psalm. Psalm 4 is an evening psalm, and there's different concept verses within those passages that give that revelation. Psalm 5 is filled, again, with expressions for intense help and cries for God's help. Psalm 6, we saw last time, last Wednesday, is the psalmist's deep personal anguish as he seeks the Lord. This is some type of maybe judgment for his sin, some type of physical affliction. He asks the Lord for deliverance. And now we come to Psalm 7, where this is a very real account, a very real instance, specifics that we have, that helps us to understand what David exactly is going through. So tonight we'll hang our thoughts around four brief points. Save me, verses 1 and 2. This is a cry that David gives to God. He cries out in verses 1 and 2, save me. Verses 3 through 5, search me. Verses 6 through 9, support me, O God. Verses 10 through 17, shield me. Save me, search me, support me, shield me. Number one, here in verses 1 and 2, we find that David is crying out to the Lord. You find out who your trust is in when you go through some type of affliction or trial, as we've seen again and again in these passages. In fact, there's a compound effect that we see here. And friends, it's this. It's simply, if you have not experienced trial or great affliction or injustice or unconfessed sin, the results of unconfessed sin in your life, you will. And the Psalms here gives us firm grounding to know what to do when these things take place in our life. Verses 1 and 2, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who would persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces, while there is none to deliver. Here we see David crying out to the Lord, asking him literally to save him from his enemies for protection. Save him specifically from his enemies and save him from all evil. Notice how David describes it, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. In other words, God, if you do not save me, I have no hope. You are my only hope, my only plea. Now, David is not just a great poet. David is not just a great writer. David has experienced this again and again and again, hasn't he? He's been on the run many times for his life. He knows what it's like to, to be running from Saul. He knows what it's like to be running from Absalom. He knows what it's like to fear for his life. And he knows what it's like to cry unto the Lord and to ask him to deliver him. Save me, O God. This word delivered that's used twice in verses 1 and 2 conveys the idea of being saved from imminent danger and harm. To be snatched away, to be rescued in the, the nick of time, you could say. To be drawn out of, we think of Moses uh, floating in a little basket and not knowing all the full dangers, but having a cognizant awareness of what is in the Nile River. <laughs> There's all types of things in the Nile River. And in God's providence and timing, we see that Pharaoh's daughter comes at just the appropriate time, in the fullness of time. And in a sense, Moses is spared, if you will, by all the would-be things that could happen to him from soldiers from crocodiles and other things, to be pulled away, to be discovered, to be drawn out of. And this is what David asked the Lord to do. Again and again, Psalm 39, verse 8, he asked the Lord to save him from his transgressions. In Psalm 86, verse 13, he uses his word to say, deliver me from the grave. Again and again, David loves this word, this cry. And friends, it's a word that we know as well. Lord, save me. We often feel so secure. We often feel grounded until... Our life, 
our reputation, or our character, or in a very real way, a semi is pulling over in our lane, and we, the only thing we can utter up is, Lord, help. <laughs> Lord, deliver. Lord, save. Have you ever been in such a moment? Have you ever been in a drastic moment where you were desperate and you cried it out? I, I can recount in my own life a number of times where there's physical danger. But again, coming back to the text, that's the understanding of the word, how it's used. Specifically, David is asking the Lord to save him. He knows, that, he knows that if he loses the confidence of his people, if these lies take root, then he, he is in great danger. Secondly, we see David's cry, not only, Lord, save me, but Lord, search me. I am regularly challenged by David's cry to the Lord, his boldness to come before the presence of God and to say, search me, O God. We would, we would say, if you could formulate our prayers here at Grace, this is not meant to be a boastful thing. It's just a factual, practical thing. This is probably, hopefully, one of our number one prayers we ask of the Lord. Search me, O oh God, corporately, in our corporate times of coming before him. And also individually, no doubt. If we had insight into each one of our own prayer lives and prayer journals and our walks with the Lord. Here this speaks of a man of God. A man of God is one who can come before the Lord and say, I have nothing to hide. Search me, O God. Notice with you verse 3. O Lord my God. Notice here. If I have done this, if I have done what these individuals are saying, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust." It is very normal and natural thing for us to hide from the light. In fact, you could say this is a sure sign of grace, God's grace, in that we do not hide from the light. John chapter 3 is a reference I'll quote again in just a moment. But Jesus makes clear the reason men do not come to the light, speaking of the personal work of Christ, the work of his ministry on earth, the reason men don't come to the light is because their deeds are evil and they don't want to be exposed to the truth. Friends, listen, when we come to the light, it may be uncomfortable, it may be awful when we see the gross, gross reality, the grotesque nature of our sin, our pride, our ingratitude, all the things that we are hidden in our hearts and then we're exposed by the mirror of God's word. But it is life-giving. It is salvific, if you will, when we come and say, Lord, I'm willing to be exposed by the light of your countenance, by the truth of your word. Friends, do you come before the Lord and say, Search me. Now, this is the action on our part, right? Of course, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. We, we understand that. This is the omniscience of God, his everywhere, his transcendence. God sees, of course, that's the, his nature, he is spirit. But yet, it is, it is like the little child who goes from hiding in the middle of the room and saying, Find me, try, thinking he can hide from his dad, playing a hide-and-seek game, and says, Mommy or Daddy, find me. And they're thinking they're hiding, and the child changing from this position and saying, I, I need to confess something to you. I no longer think I'm hiding something. Uh, or maybe in the floor, having covered with a blanket, and they think they're actually hiding, and they've not actually gone anywhere. But yet they're attempting to, if you will. And that's meant to be a humorous example. But we move from that type of posture where we, of our own volition, you could say, we come before the Lord and say, search me, O God. This is what godly people do. We're not afraid of the truth. 
And we have to remind ourselves of this. Now, David particularly is not afraid of this because he knows he's not guilty of what he's being accused of. But I'm speaking very generally. It's just a reminder for us to come before the judging, critiquing word of God. It is life-giving to our souls. In verses 3 and 4, David says, search me, O God. And he says, search me in this way. He gives God an invitation. He says, I invite your examination. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity of whatever Cush is accusing him of, and there's hints here we'll see in the text of what that is. But he says, if there is iniquity or guilt on my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or plundered my enemy without a cause. Let's just hit Paul's right there. He's inviting God's examination. If you know anything about the life of David, David has a holy zeal for, the, for the, the, just the, a passion for God. David never wants to overstep his bounds as a tenor of his life, whereas this is God's work. David is not trying to bring judgment before the time personally. Again and again, he has opportunities to, to strike down or simply to give the word to one of his men to kill or take the life of someone who probably deserves to be killed for their, for their actions. But again and again, he leaves that action or that judgment to the Lord. He's willing to let the Lord be his defender. David has never gotten away from who he is, just a shepherd boy. He knows he's nothing special. David was once a, tender of, uh, a caretaker of sheep, and now he finds himself as the king, and he knows that it's all of God's grace. So he invites God's examination because the tenor of his heart is not to do injustice to those who are at peace with him. David is the man who has a, a Christ-like heart. David is the man who is a man after God's heart who goes and seeks out Mephibosheth. Who's Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth is of the house of Saul. Mephibosheth is not someone that David has to go be kind to. The general practice of kings is when you obtain the throne, you immediately identify who are your threats, and you go and kill them. If you want to see more, look at, simply look at David's advice to Solomon at the closing of I believe, 2 Samuel, where he tells Solomon, you need to deal with Joab. You need to deal, when he gives a list of names, as he's dying his last breaths, he's concerned about Solomon's reign. He says, Solomon, deal with so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. And that's exactly what Solomon does. David is the man who seeks to be kind. Not perfectly in all ways. We're not saying that he is, the, he is the Lord himself. He is not the Lord. He is not the true David. Christ is the true and greater David. But David's bent is one of mercy. David's bent is the one to say, how can I just show the goodness of God? Mephibosheth, you have a place at my table all your days. But here... Here, he's being accused of doing the exact opposite, and that's why it hurts. <laughs> that's why it digs. It's like a dagger that is unseen that goes right in between the ribs and is turned and twisted. He's like, wait a second. This is unfounded. This is not true. So he says, search me, O God. I invite your examination, verses 3 and 4. Verse 5, he says, I invite your correction. Lord, if I need to be corrected, correct me. Again, friends, this is the posture of a true child of God. Someone who can be corrected. Someone who invites God's correction. Someone who wants to be right with God. He says here, verses 4 and 5, he says, If I have done these things, verse 5, verse 4, he says, he asks that question rhetorically, If I have done these things, verse 5, let the enemy then pursue me. Let them come get me. 
and overtake me. Yes, let them trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. You know, if you looked at Solomon's reign, everyone was astounded at the wisdom that Solomon had. No one reigned like Solomon reigned. No one had the wisdom that Solomon had. Even the Queen of Sheba came to, with all her list of questions and, and uh, riddles and puzzles and found that Solomon's wisdom was all that it was said to be. And if Solomon was judging King David, his father, unusual example, I know, but Solomon had ways of getting to the truth, ways that God had filled his heart with wisdom. And if Solomon heard David say, verse 5, Solomon, as David is a, just a normal citizen coming before and being brought in an unjust way, Solomon, if I am guilty of these things and you find these things to be true, then let them kill me. Let them overtake me. Let them trample my life on the earth. Let them lay my honor in the dust. And I have no doubt that Solomon would say, this man is innocent. Let him go free. But he's not crying out to Solomon. He is crying out to the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I believe it's 16 times in this passage that David refers to one of the names of God. Yahweh, the Lord, El Elyon. In different passages, different, excuse me, different verses. But he invites the critique of the Lord. He says to the Lord, search me, O God. I invite your examination. I invite your correction. And I will receive it, O God, if you feel like I am guilty here. Now moving into verses 6 through 9. Save me. Search me. David shifts from this hunter metaphor where he describes being on the run from those who would seek his life. And he moves, interestingly, lest you be judgmental of David, to a courtroom metaphor, scenario. You know, there's times in our life we crave a courtroom scenario, don't we? Do you ever? You're accused of wrongdoing at work. Someone takes credit for your work or someone blames upon you a, a, slot, a, a job that is not well done and it just gets wrapped around you. There's no, it, by, if you just simply looked at the evidence... You know, you have no other thing to, but it's like, wait, 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 look, look, it's not true. It's not fair. And you wish there could be a court. You wish you wish you could vindicate yourself. That's exactly what David does here. David pulls the the imagination, the dream that many of us have if we feel like there's injustice. And David says, support me, O God, verses six through nine. And David prays five specific things that he asked the Lord to do. He knows his God. And he asked the Lord to do some things, and David prays with a knowledge of the character of God. Verse 6, he asked the Lord, he says, Arise in your anger, O Lord. Arise in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. Here David wants God's justice to match the, the anger of his enemies that they have against him. He wants the Lord to come to his aid. He asked the Lord to rise up in his righteous anger. And friends, as we'll see in just a moment in a few verses, there is such a thing as the righteous anger of God. And we see this again and again in these psalms, these penitential psalms, and also these psalms of lament, and also these imprecatory psalms that God's justice, his righteousness, and his wrath are appealed to. First thing he asks of the Lord to bring about his support is a rise in your anger, verses 6 and 7. Lord, attack, deal with my adversaries. So he asks the Lord, beginning verse 6 and 7, he says, So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. You reign, the context is God is reigning on his throne of justice. Psalm 119, verse 18, the Lord's throne is in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over 
All. That's a key text that David is, he's assuming is in our mind's eye here. So he says, so the congregation of the people shall surround you because you're in the heavens for their sakes. Therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. He asked the Lord to deal with those that he cannot in his own power, in his own strength, deal with. Here, he asked the Lord to arraign, verses 7 and 8, the peoples, picturing a public judgment scene. Now, David is not, as I pointed out, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, David is appealing to a sense of justice, but we need to be reminded that David is not the perfect sinless one. Here's a comment from one commentator who says this, and he asked the Lord, this is from Christ in the Psalms, Patrick Reardon. He says, the Psalter is not human merely because it speaks for man in general, but because it speaks for Christ. The underlying voice of the Psalms is not simply man. So when we see these cries from David, it's not simply David's voice that is ultimate, but the voice of the God-man Christ Jesus. To enter into the prayer of this book is not merely to share the sentiments of King David or Asaph or one of the other inspired prophets. The foundational voice of the Psalms the underlying, and I love the way he phrases this, the underlying baseline of its harmony is rather the voice of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now, while many of us may claim a provisional righteousness like what we see in verse 8, there is only one who has perfect righteousness, and that is Christ Jesus the Lord. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 describes the voice of this psalm, this perfect man, Christ Jesus, when it was... Uh, Peter describes Christ as he who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So we ask the Lord in this sense to arraign the peoples and to bring about a vindication, to set the record straight. And it reminds us that maybe as we face tribulations or maybe even just on a personal level criticism, maybe one of the most hurtful, but one of the most frustrating things that we deal with in this life, isn't it? Spurgeon said this, it was received a letter of a long list of aggrievements, and he simply responded back with this phrase, Brother, you may be right. That's a humble response, isn't it? And even though we see David's emotions here at their peak, and we sense the tone of the text, we find ourselves in that very odd place of knowing we are sinners saved by grace. Of knowing there may even be times in our past where we were guilty of the sins we're being accused of but just not now. We've been bought by Christ. We've been covered by the blood of Christ. There's a sense of injustice. David continues his list of things that he asked the Lord to do in his support of him. Verse 9, he says, Abolish the wicked. Verse 9, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God. So he asked the Lord to abolish the wicked and also to affirm, to establish the foundation of the righteous. Save me, O God. Search me. Support me. And now as we move into verses 10 through 17, he asked the Lord to be his shield. Shield me, O God. Beginning there, verse 10, he says, My defense is of the Lord. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. 
Well, this is different, <clears throat> certainly different than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's the general conversation starter that most of us give, or sometimes, hopefully not now, but have given in the past in our evangelism. Here, David asked the Lord to shield him, and we see this golden nugget that David pulls out, this unusual verse that, if we're honest, we do not speak of enough. We don't reflect on often, but yet it is true nonetheless. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the, Lord, with the wicked every day. So here, he asked the Lord to shield him, and he asked the Lord for a sure defense. Here, David gives a glorious vision of God who will fight for all of his children who are oppressed, who've experienced unjust types of problems that have come their way. Now here, he again describes that the Lord, his posture towards the wicked in general is one of wrath, one of anger, one that he will ultimately pour out his wrath upon this lost world and he is angry with them every day. Here, verse 11 tells us that he's not only going to deal with them in judgment, but his posture even now is one of anger. You could say it like this. Wait a second. I thought you preached this morning Christ loves us and that he lived our perfect life for us. He, he did. Yes, 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 and yes. But friends, let me just put it like this. God sent his son so that he could save you from himself. God saves you for himself, by himself, from himself. Now, that's not in my notes. It's in my memory. There's a more eloquent way to say that. But the bottom line is, is behold your God here in the text. Your God who is unlike any other God. He is angry with the wicked every day. And even now, even in this life, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul describes that to some measure... That in God's anger and wrath that he allows sinners to experience the full recompense of their sin in this earthly life. Like it's not all just future. There's not just a day of judgment coming, but there is a very real sowing and reaping here. Of course, all of it, all of it is within the justice and administration of God. It is up to his ways. It's not our ways. It is his ways. And it's up to him when he allows us. God is the one who says, listen, that's the final gospel call you will ever hear. No more. Your, your heart is hardened. As we see in the Psalms, Thomas Watson says it like this. He says God rules with a, with a scepter, and that points to his sovereignty, and he also rules with a rod of iron, and that is his justice. And this justice may be swift even now, in this day, in this age, but it is certainly, most certainly will it be in the future. Well, friends, let's just be reminded that this is the message we don't need to forget. This is what makes the gospel sweet. This is what makes the gospel good news, just by way of a side here, thinking about this, this astounding verse, that God is angry with the wicked every day. Could it be that our gospel is not heard more potently because the wicked see no need for it? The God we present to them, the God we preach to them, the God we describe for them is one of who cares about him. Friends, they need to be concerned about him. He is angry with the wicked every day. When we begin our gospel presentation, again, this is just an aside, when we begin our gospel presentation with the love of God, it's certainly true, it's certainly good, it's certainly sweet, but listen, it is profoundly sweeter when we understand that God's wrath is upon us. The default position of God towards this world of one that he will judge the wicked. That's what makes the good news so good. 
It's like a doctor trying to give you a vaccine or some type of cure and you don't even realize you have the disease. But when you come to understand you have the disease, you begin to see the cure for the glorious thing that it is. Chemo doesn't sound great, but when you understand that you have cancer, but this chemo, the doctor says, and I know these are imperfect illustrations, but the doctor says, let me just tell you, if, if you will do this, you will be spared. Yeah, but that's, uh, yeah, but I don't know if I want to. Listen, chemo has a whole new view in your eyes when you understand that your life is at stake here. Again, I think you get the point. John 3.36 tells us that God's wrath abides on us in our darkness and in our lostness and in our sin. And ultimately, Romans 2, verse 5, Paul says that the wicked are storing up for themselves wrath upon wrath. Every day that goes by that they do not bow the knee to King Jesus is another day of wrath upon wrath of God, like a mighty dam being shored up that it's going to explode and crush them if they do not run and flee to Christ. Well, that sure sounds like old-fashioned language. Well, let me point you to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. In Paul exhorts in Jesus, even Jesus who delivers from the wrath of God of God to come. Jesus saves him, saves us by himself, for himself, from himself. Behold the mystery of the gospel. Behold the mystery of God. I know I'm not doing a dent in it, and I know I'm not doing it justice, but still, behold the glory of God, the mystery of God, and how all of these things come together. Now, he asked the Lord to support him with God's defense, verses 10 and 11, and then in verse 12, to support him with God's word. And he begins to use weaponry language here. Notice in verse 12 with God's word, verse 12 as well with God's bow, with verse 13 with God's mighty arrows. All of this is speaking of God's wisdom, God's deadly weapons that are prepared and poised against the enemies of his chosen ones. Verses 14 through 16, he describes this, this process of sin. So let's just kind of hit pause for himself as we look at this language. Verse 12, if he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword, he bends his bow, and he makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth his iniquity. Here, David describes our God's weaponry, if you will. He brings into play anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic descriptions that help us to understand God's wrath on a very real level. We can think all throughout history, lest I'm not hitting the point, aiming, uh, hitting the target here, to go with David's analogy. All throughout history, in the Old Testament, God has brought his mighty arrows to bear upon his enemies. You can simply look to Pharaoh at the Red Sea. You can look all throughout. You can look at uh, Darius and Nebuchadnezzar and others in the book of Daniel. Those who were enemies of God, who ignored God, who ignored his word. And ultimately God brought his mighty bow and his flaming arrows against them and took their lives. Most maybe figuratively, Ahab, who sinned again and again against the Lord. God warned him and warned him to repent and he would not repent. And ultimately in his final judgment, God brought his proverbial mighty arrow against Ahab. And if you remember that context, Ahab is going off to war after he receives the judgment of God, and he decides that he can outsmart the God and the enemy by not wearing his kingly garments, but yet he still has his armor on. And in a seemingly abstract, just an errant arrow goes flying through the air, but even though that's the arrow of man, it's God's arrow. That arrow finds the exact spot in between his armor. I mean, what are the odds, you know? What is the what are the chances, and it's exactly 
right. There are no chance things with God. R.C. Sproul says, I believe, there is no maverick molecules in the universe. So we see here that David appeals to God's vengeance, his bow, his arrows, verses 14 through 16, his enemies. With God as a just judge, verse 14, behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Now notice David's description. Yes, he conceives of trouble and he brings forth the falsehood here using the, the metaphor of a, a bearing child or a pregnancy. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth the falsehood. And then he, secondly, he makes a pit and he dug it out and he has fallen into the ditch which he then made. Now James picks up on this same language by describing how evil is internal. It is a part of our nature and with the wicked it is a process. Here in verse 14 he makes reference to that by describing it like conception and gestation and ultimately giving birth. And he gives, it gives birth to disillusionment or nothingness or emptiness. Now, that's exactly the way James describes the process of sin spiritually in our life. James chapter 1, verse 14, when James describes temptations in the life of the Christian. If you remember that context, James says this, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts, his own desires, and enticed. And when that happens, verse 15, when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, speaking of the same kind of metaphor for the process, brings forth death. Friends, listen, we have no one to blame for our sin problems but ourselves, according to the Spirit-inspired portion here in the book of James. And that's what David's referring to as well. They're plotting, they're deceiving, their, their plans. And so in verse 15 and 16, he says, their evil plots are designed to entrap me, ensnare me, but it ends up trapping them. Well, this is exactly what Proverbs 26, 27 says. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever rolls a stone will have it roll back upon him. Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. This is God's inherent inbuilt judgment in regards to our sin, not in the future, but in this life. And that's what David says exactly what he desires to happen, what will happen. We can think of the illustration in Esther chapter 3 of Haman, who hated God's people, despised God's people, was anti-Semitic. And he devised a plan, if you remember, to kill the Jews and came up with a crafty plot, or so he thought, and had the gallows built and constructed. And in God's wisdom, ultimately, through Mordecai and Esther teaming together, in the wisdom and providence of God, if you remember, Haman was hung on the gallows of the very uh, gallows that he constructed. So we see, again, Scripture replete with examples for us that shows this very thing. When we close out this final example here of David's cry to the Lord, asking him to support him, to shield him, in verse 17. And in verse 17, he asked the Lord to shield him with victory. He says there in verse 17, he says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Now, David here appeals to what he knows to be true about God. And in this, this word, the name of the Lord most high is both Jehovah El Yon which is the Lord Most High. It is the Jehovah, the God of the covenant. And then El Yon, this speaks of God's universal rule and control. It's, it points us to 
his sovereignty. The name Elyon uh, by itself is used 36 times in the scriptures, but it's the first time that it's used here in the Psalms. And so David concludes this psalm in verse 17 of saying, I will praise the God who reigns, you could say, Jehovah Elyon, according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Here we see that David has confidence not as an orphan, not as someone who is, is abandoned, but in who his father God has adopted. He has great faith in Jehovah Elyon, his covenant-keeping God. But not just as his God who keeps his promises, but as God who can actually fulfill them. His God that can actually do something about it. Well, again, as all the Psalms are unique and portraits or vignettes into David's life, may the Lord help us to look to Christ. This is an example in the life of David. But may the Lord, by His Spirit, help us to look to the true and greater David, who, when unjustly accused, stood before Pilate, before his enemies, and what did he do? Did he even do what David did? And the answer to that is no. He uttered not a word. He was confident in his Father. Jesus was confident in his Father in heaven, who would judge justly. He was confident that the Father would take care of everything that needed to be taken care of. What does Psalm chapter 7 help us to learn about our God, just by way of conclusion? God is a safe refuge for us. God is a righteous judge. God is worthy of our praise. And if we have placed our faith in Christ and Christ alone, we can call him exactly what David calls him as well. He is Jehovah Elyon. He is our mighty covenant-keeping God who reigns. Now, friends, I can think of a lot of ways that Monday morning can go tomorrow morning, but that's a great way to start the second day of the week and to go into your work week with a heart full of praise, a heart full of courage, resting in your awesome God. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. And Father, we thank you for your word, how it shepherds our hearts. And as we see in the book of Psalms, how it gives voice and articulation to the desires of our hearts that we don't even realize we have sometimes. Father, forgive us of our sins. We want to be a people that are mightily used of you. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you. We submit to you. And we ask that you would use us. Show us our sins and show us anything, Lord, that we can deal with and be, that can need to be confessed so that we can come before you and say, Lord, use us this week. Let us be filled with your spirit, led by your wisdom. Let us be salt and light for your glory. Help us to sharpen those around us as iron sharpens iron. Help us to advance your kingdom. And Lord, we start at the humbling place of confession. Forgive us of our ingratitude. Lord, will we live our life thinking that we have achieved all that we have experienced or what we have, where we stop and forget to give thanks to the Lord. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of our pride of looking down upon those that you have called us to labor with, to serve for, to witness the gospel of Jesus Christ to. Father, we cannot reach them effectively if there's a spirit of arrogance or pride in our hearts. All the subtle sins that are lurking, Lord, that we are blind to, would you reveal to us as your people. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness. You are the covenant-keeping God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.